Welcome to Case by Case. This is a podcast brought to you by Callum Chain and Luke Zadkovich from Xylofloid Zadkovich. How are you today, Callum? I'm very good, Luke. Very good. How are you doing? Good, good, good. I've just come back from my round the world in 10 days trip. Uh, kind of thing. I was going to say we, we we can play where in the world is is Luke Zadkovich again. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, <laughs> it's uh, but it, look, it was a good trip. It was a good trip. Uh, ticked off quite a few places, and um, pleased to be back in in the hot seat. And I'm actually, I know I say this every time, but uh, I am genuinely excited for today's case and today's topic. Can I tell you why? Please do. So it. The, the reason I'm excited is it takes me right, right back to when I first started um, legal practice about 21 years ago, um, or nearing 21 years ago um, in Australia. I started as a, a paralegal slash litigation clerk. And one of the things that we had to do, one of our main tasks, was to go to return of subpoena in the Workers' Compensation Court, as it then was. Um, it was a district-level court uh, in Australia. It since got changed to a commission, but that's a different story. But in any event, there was a, a formal court, and as paralegals, we would go to these um, court appearances before a judge or a registrar, um, and, well, usually it was before the registrar initially, but then if there was a privilege claim, uh, it would be kicked off to the judge. Um, so quite early in my career, before I was qualified, as I was still studying, I, I used to go along to these return of subpoena, meaning um, return of documents before the court, where before either party um, got access to look at the bundle of documents that had come in, typically from... Uh, medical doctors, um, the parties had an opportunity to claim privilege over what was in those documents. Um, and we you know, often would go along and assert privilege for the dominant purpose of litigation or for legal advice, the two main um, types of legal privilege that exist, and we'll be exploring one of those today. Uh, and yeah, we'd argue it, and sometimes you get kicked off um, to a judge to argue it before a judge, and it was it was a very exciting thing to do, you know, just right out of um, not even out of law school while I was still studying. Nice. So this is really a trip down memory lane. It sure is. It it really is. And you know what? In in many ways, the fundamental principles haven't changed all that much in all, all that time. Yeah, and that's particularly the case on the waiver point where. It seems in this judgment that there actually aren't too many principles um, of uh, in the law of you know waiver of privilege, and um, we can get onto it in a bit, and I'm sure we will. But it, it, a lot of it revolves around this concept of fairness. Yeah, yeah, exactly. One of those concepts that can seem a bit woolly, but actually allows flexibility depending on the circumstances of of the situation. I totally agree. I, I thought though that this case, and I should introduce it, this case is called Kyla Shipping, K-Y-L-A K Y L A Shipping, and Vega um, Carriers, and on the defendant side, Freight Trading, Sea Transport, a couple of companies for them, and, and an individual before Mr. Charles Hollander QC, sitting as a deputy judge of the High Court in England, 
the decision was handed down on the 22nd of February, 2022. Yeah. So Queensland Division Commercial Court. Yeah. And I, I, I thought this was a, a useful case. It's one of the, one of the repetitious points we keep making on these, these episodes, but I highly recommend reading the case if you come along and have to deal with litigation privilege because it really lays out the legal principles well and also cuts through them. The facts are a little denser than some of the previous cases we've talked about, I thought. And yep. so on that note, I'll hand over to you to deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I re- reading through them, I thought there's, these are quite dense facts. Took a couple of reviews to try and work out who all the acronyms were. But I agree with you, and we'll get on to it. I agree with you that this really, for, litiga- for litigation privilege or waiver, is one of those textbook chapters in, in judgment form where it, it is another case to earmark and go back to. But without further ado, let's get on to the facts, at least insofar as they're relevant to, um, to this case, yeah. because... As is often the way with the disclosure case, this is kind of satellite litigation. It's ancillary to the main dispute. And the main dispute is a mispricing slash fraud claim under a series of freight forwarding agreements, which actually sounds like a fascinating, which I think by now has gone to trial. And it was a 12-day trial in the high court. So we'll see if that has indeed gone ahead and not been settled, what the decision uh, was when it when it comes out. Maybe we'll have this this case back on the podcast. But this... This part of the case, this disclosure exercise, was kind of hived off to an early, earlier decision before that 12-day trial. And the issue was that there were these documents that were found by, by Kyla, and they were found as part of a separate dispute. So before this dispute came to light, Kyla was, having, was in, embroiled in its own dispute, or at least two of the shareholders of Kyla were embroiled in in their own dispute, which was potentially litigious. There's not a huge amount of detail about what that dispute was, but it seems like there was an insurance recovery and there was a question mark over the splitting of, of any dividend in respect of that, of that insurance recovery. And as part, of, as, as part of, of that dispute, one of the parties to that dispute decided to, to look into these freight forwarding agreements that they'd entered into historically. And there's a, a witness statement that was given talking about you know, the, the process of them digging back through these freight forwarding agreements where the, the person giving the witness statement effectively said, we were just looking for something to counterweight the claims against us. So we were kind of doing the exercise of trying to pull a claim together so that we had a counterclaim to the claim that was being advanced. And that would basically help with settlement value. I think the phrase that the, the person uses in this witness statement is that they're trying to provide some ballast in those proceedings. And the question was then whether those documents that were found as part of that exercise fell within litigation privilege because they were, you know, they were discovered as part of the exercise of litigation A, which was this shareholder dispute, but whether that litigation privilege would then extend into litigation B, which was these freight forwarding disputes. Yeah, it was a, exactly. And it's not a phrase you come across too often, you know, adding ballast in, in correspondence. We know the the phrase ballast well from, from shipping terms, but yeah, what does that, what does that really mean? And I remember I once, I once said that Damon should attend a meeting to add some ballast to the meeting and he didn't take that too kindly, but I think <laughs> that may be topped by this. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. This, the whole ballast exercise as, as the judge called it here was, was the turning point. So thank you for that on the facts. I think it's. It's, it's a really useful one to kind of skip through the principles on litigation 
privilege. So just to recap, two types of legal professional privilege under English law. One is for if the document comes into existence for legal advice, that's one type of privilege. That's not what was in issue in this case. The type, the second type of privilege that was in issue here is a privilege over documents that came into existence for the dominant purpose of conducting litigation in reasonable prospect. So it's this dominant purpose test and it's for the purpose of litigation. Now the litigation doesn't need to be on foot and commenced as yet. It can be in contemplation of proceedings. And as, as you'll appreciate, there's often, you know, a moving line or a fine line between when proceedings are just a possibility when, you know, it's conceivable or possible versus okay, we've now shifted over to proceedings being a likelihood or they are being contemplated. We are preparing for, for litigation. And there's a, there's a few principles that are are well laid out. This is obviously a a fundamental right that's been around forever and ever and a day. So there's been a lot of law on this over the years. And this judgment, I think, kind of condenses it, pulls it together and focuses on, on what's important. And I thought maybe it might be useful just to skip through a few of those headline points. I'm thinking primarily from the Starbev uh, Interbrew case, Callum, and I might just run through those. So the the first, well, before getting onto Starbev, just one kind of overriding point to, to keep in mind is that where there are two equal purposes behind obtaining a document or creating a document, that's not enough to fall within the dominant purpose test. That the dominant purpose of the document needs to be obtained for the purposes of contemplated litigation. So two equal purposes, not enough. That's one yeah. point. And I think that, that, that kind of checks out because if there's two equal purposes, then neither is dominant over the other. So I think that's just emphasizing this use of the, the dominant purpose there. Exactly. And so that comes from the war and British railways board case from 1980. And then the, the case that you will see and hear cited a lot on a litigation privilege is a Starbev and Interbrew case from 2013, and particularly the, the decision or the, the judgment of Hamblin. And some of the key points that are set out point by point in that case are, are these. One is that the burden of proof is on the party claiming privilege to establish it. Secondly, the court will look at evidence that sits around or other evidence in the case and not just the assertion of privilege and the statement of the purpose of the communication from the witness statement. So what typically happens in these cases is that the solicitor on, on, on record will give a witness statement, or indeed it could be a, a director or someone of, of the actual company appearing in the case as well. They will give a witness statement that sets out the purpose for which the document came into existence or was obtained. And that statement or that assertion of purpose is not determinative. The court will look to facts around or other facts in the case to assess the the purpose. Yeah. And I thought just jumping in there, something that came out of this judgment on both the dominant purpose, sorry, the litigation privilege test and the waiver test is the, the, I guess the deference that the court gives to the solicitors, to the solicitors who are undertaking this disclosure review. And it's quite clearly set out in this judgment that 
there is a large degree of latitude given to the solicitors that make the decision of, you know, is this, is this disclosable or not, or is this privileged? But at the same time, it's not final. And if a solicitor gives a witness statement saying, you know, I, I, I've read this document and I consider it to be privileged. That's not determinative of the question of privilege. It's an evidential point, and it's still you still then need to prove. You, you, you still then it still then needs to be you know fully proved, and it's it's open to open to critique from the other side. Exactly, and I read it also as not quite a warning, but more of a reminder to solicitors of their duties as officers of the court. It was almost like an implicit you know reminder that as officers of the court. We as solicitors have duties to the court and in assessing privilege claims and asserting privilege and then putting together witness statements, asserting what the dominant purpose of certain documents are, we need to keep that duty in mind because it could well be that the documents reviewed, it could well be that that assertion by the solicitor is tested in some way. And we need to keep in mind that, you know, we, we, we have a duty in that. I, I thought that was quite important. And it's this balancing act between, you know, moving away from the duty point, but coming back to where you were, it, it's more that the court has to weigh on one side, the fundamental right to not um, have your privileged infringed or opened up, but on the other side, the person who's asserting the privilege has holds all the cards. They, they know all the information. They know what they can and can't say or what they want to say or don't want to say. And so when the court is looking at assertions of privilege or statements of intent or purpose, the court will really look behind that to what other documents there are and test that because it's only fair for the other party who doesn't know what the documents contain. Yeah, exactly. As the judge says in it, in a claim for privilege, the the judges are their uh, sorry the the lawyers are the judges in their own client's cause. So you're making a decision. Well, you're making a decision for everybody without the other side being in a position to properly contest it because they can't see the document that you're asserting yes. privilege over. Yes. Um. And so the third point, and we've kind of touched on this a little bit, is that, and this was really the key issue in this case, is that the the party claiming privilege must establish that litigation was reasonably contemplated or anticipated. It is not sufficient that there is a mere possibility of litigation or you know, a, a distinct possibility that someone might at some stage bring proceedings or a general apprehension of future litigation. So that's the third point cited in, um, in the Starbev case. And then the fourth one is that the party must also show that the relevant communications were for the dominant purpose of either one, enabling legal advice to be sought or given and or seeking or obtaining evidence or information to be used in or in connection with such anticipated or contemplated proceedings. Where communications may have taken place for a number of purposes, it is incumbent on the party claiming privilege to establish the dominant purpose was litigation. So this is a a recitation of the point that we were talking about right at the outset, that two equal purposes is not enough. You need to establish one is the dominant purpose. And the court will look at these points that I've just run through from an objective standpoint so that they will look at other documents or look at other evidence and they will assess it objectively. Yeah, exactly. And that case is, is well settled and sorry, that law is well settled and that test is well settled. I think it's important to distinguish that from 
when we go on to talk about waiver, which is perhaps slightly more up in the air, the test for litigation privilege is is, is well settled and is, is clear law. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's right. And the other other point I thought from more of a practitioner's perspective or, you know, thinking about how to handle privilege claims and, and how to deal with the procedure is is to highlight the four options that a court has when they're assessing privilege. I thought those were quite useful in paragraph 24. Yeah, it, that was an interesting section. It wasn't something that I, that I knew that you know, that it was so, that this was, this was something that was, you know, so, so clear from the court, but they effectively talk about four options if they're, if they're not satisfied about the assertion of privilege. And basically the one, one option is the court can conclude that the evidence doesn't establish a legal right to withhold inspection and they can therefore order inspection of the document, effectively making the, the determination for the other parties. Another, another option is the court can order a further witness statement to deal with issues that are not properly covered in the first witness statement, so the witness statement that says we believe this document is privileged because of reasons X, Y, and Z, the court may say, well, you've not dealt with A, B, and C, so you need to go back and deal with A, B, and C, and then we'll determine it again. And another option is that the court may just inspect the documents itself to try and make a determination on whether or not they're privileged. And the final option is that the court can order cross-examination on the witness statement, which I think for most lawyers would be the one that they would hope not to, um, not to land on. Exactly, but it's you know it's important to keep in mind that it's there. It's in it's in the in the set of options that you you may face, and I have seen it. I have seen it happen again many years yeah. ago. Thankfully, not myself, but I have seen cross examination on on these procedural witness statements around issues of privilege, and it's yeah, cross examination is not fun for anyone. Yeah, so look, there's a number of other principles in, in amongst this which we've kind of touched on already, um, but would encourage those that are dealing with these issues to, to go through it step by step. I thought the SFO and ENRC example was an interesting one where you had a, a judge at first instance. For those that don't know, this was a case where the serious fraud office in the UK were investigating possible overseas bribery and con- corruption by ENRC. And so in terms of this context, ENRC had conducted an, an internal investigation using external solicitors under the uh, 2009 SFO self-reporting guidelines. And the question was whether the documents that had been created and obtained during the internal investigation by external solicitors was covered by litigation privilege, was litigation in reasonable contemplation, thus protected by privilege. And the judge at first instance in that case decided that there was not, and that the the claim was rejected, the privilege claim was rejected because there was no evidence that there was anything beyond just unverified allegations themselves. And, and really ENRC was seeking to, you know, understand what had happened more so for preparing for litigation. But then it was reversed at Court of Appeal and the Court of Appeal adopted a much more generous view as to when litigation can be said to be in reasonable contemplation. And I thought what was, was interesting about that decision is that it was, it was based, and this goes a bit to what you were saying before about fairness, albeit in, you, you mentioned it in the, in the waiver context, but they, they brought in some policy kind of considerations for that decision to say that if, if privilege was not extended to this type of external investigation or, you know, let's say a whistle, whistleblower type situation, 
then companies may be disincentivized to start running those types of investigations and understanding the situation if whatever they uncover and you know communications had internally were not protected by privilege. That's not to say that the underlying information should be protected by privilege, but the communications and the, and the process and the documents that are created by virtue of the investigation should be. And I thought that was a, that was an interesting one. Yeah, it, it was, it's, it's a really interesting case and you can, you can see the logic there for the court of the, from the court of appeal to, to say, as you know, as, as you put it, that you don't want to disincentivize people taking credible, credible accusations seriously and investigating them. I, I didn't see the, the direct parallel between the, the policy considerations at play in the SFO case and the much more commercial considerations at play in this case. I can see why, you know, that they, they were, they were making the arguments that, that this extended the, the scope of litigation privilege. But in my view, the, the, the policy considerations there were, were not broad enough to also cover a case of this nature, where effectively the investigation was into a purely kind of commercial matter. Yeah. And it, it draws a, a parallel with the other cases of Sotheby's and Mark uh, Weiss and the rehire grade traders case where there were there were kind of two purposes and and it was this you know this analysis or assessment as to whether they were two equal purposes or whether they were really for the dominant purpose of contemplated litigation and the other purpose was like a, another aspect of the purpose, you know, so there was this concept in the, the rehire grade case where it was, I think the report was being commissioned into the cause of a fire, both to work at just cause, but also then to determine whether the insurance claim could be resisted. So it was like this combination of a causation analysis and then, you know, preparing for legal posturing purpose. and. In that case, the court held, the court of appeal held that the two purposes could not be separated and that they constituted this single wider purpose and establishing the cause was just a facet, if you like, of the wider cause of trying to, you know, prepare for litigation. Whereas the Sotheby's case was about establishing whether the, the painting was a fake and whether to rescind the sale contract. And then the second was to prepare for prepare arguments that may then later arise in the anticipated litigation. In that case, there were two separate purposes. It's, you know, it, it seems like quite a fine line to, yeah, it, to divide there. It does. And I was, I was thinking the same thing when I was reading this, that it's the, the decisions on, on all these privilege cases are so fact specific. They, it really, really turns on the, on the real minutiae of the facts in each case and particularly for the, for these cases that, that go on to set authority because, you know, invariably they're the ones that have fallen between the cracks of the law as it's already established. So really when you're looking at these cases, they're so nuanced in the flat, in the fact, and the, as you say, the difference between an investigation as to the cause of, you know, the, the cause of some, of some event. And then when, when that's part and parcel of an investigation into whether or not there's going to be litigation on that event. You know, it is the dominant purpose litigation. I mean, it's, it, it, it almost feels like a stretch to say that it's not, it, it feels to me like that, you know, they're, they're obviously gearing up for some kind of litigation, right? They're not just doing this investigation for fun. And if they don't like what they find, then the next step is obviously litigation, but the court, the court then tends to say, 
sure, if the, ne- the next step might be litigation, but you've not taken that step yet, there's still no litigation in prospect at the time of commissioning this investigation. Yeah, yeah, e- exactly. I, I think that's, that's well summarised, Carolyn, if I may say. So, so what happened in this decision? Those are the legal principles. We've had the facts. What, what, what was the decision here? Yeah, and here, and here, they said that there was no litigation reasonably in prospect. Um, and the first reason was for that was that there was no indication of a counterclaim in the original case. So effectively, what they were looking for in this original case and the investigation they were undertaking was to just try and drum something up. They didn't actually think they had a counterclaim at that, at that time. They were just looking for something that, you know, a stick to poke the other side with to, to help them in, in the, in the dispute they were facing from the other side. And, and they found in this case, that's not sufficient for litigation privilege. I just thought that was a a slightly questionable decision. If, you know, there was litigation on foot at the time, but the idea that they're looking for a counterclaim is not part of that litigation. I've, I found that slightly hard to square, but Notwithstanding that, to me, the stronger point was, well, this was litigation between different parties and it wasn't litigation between the parties that are involved in this dispute. And, you know, because the litigation was involving different parties, then you can't claim litigation privilege in this case because of an investigation you undertook in respect of a different case, different litigation, where this litigation was not reasonably in prospect. Yeah, it didn't really get into, into that, the the overlap of cases and that there were kind of these different things going on at, at different purposes. It, it, it looked at it in a much narrower way to say, okay, for this particular claim was it contemplated in respect of that litigation and not the, the overlapping nature of some of the issues going on. My main takeaway was, look, if you want to establish that you're in, in contemplated litigation, don't use the phrase ballast in the correspondence. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, that's a good takeaway. I think, I think there probably are some phrases that you can use that would, that would help, yes. but I mean, yes. what, what, what else can you do? Just, I mean, commence a claim earlier, that way you're at least safe that you're covered by, by privilege. That's one, one way I, th- I was thinking of working around it. it. It is. I think it's also about the the language you use in say letters to an expert or you know in the in the ENRC example if you're going to retain external lawyers to conduct a investigation be clear on what the terms of reference or the remit of that investigation is what's the purpose of it you know if you're going to instruct an expert let's say before doing so send out a claim letter or a counterclaim letter or a defense or a you know, this is, these matters are going to be litigated now, or we're preparing now for litigation and then send out expert reports. I think there is, there are some straightforward things that you could do to like almost create some hooks to hang your hat on down the track. It's just not something that is often thought about. And, th- and that's really the takeaway, right? I think that's right. Yeah. A lot of the time, it's not something that you're thinking of because the, and, and this is the essence of the, of the privilege is if you're not thinking in terms of dispute at the time that you're doing something, then it's not, it's not privileged. But if you are thinking in terms of dispute and you can clearly show that you're thinking in terms of dispute, then it is privileged. And I think, I think actually that kind of hits the nail on the head. If you, if, if you're thinking about it hard enough to take those steps, then you probably are looking at a dominant purpose of litigation. But if you're not thinking about it hard enough to step, take those steps, then litigation is probably one of the things on your mind, but not necessarily the dominant thing in your mind. Yeah, totally. 
and, and a point of comparison or dichotomy with the next issue, and, and we can probably deal with this in a lot shorter time for those listening in on the waiver of privilege, waiver of privilege, at least I'll speak for myself and I know I'm sure you're the same. At least waiver of privilege is something that I'm always alive to, you know, very reluctant to mention that I'm, you know, that let clients say that they refer to legal advice or that they've, uh, they're obtaining legal advice or, you know, could we have clients who will say, oh, we really like your advice. Can we send it on to the other side? We're like, no, 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 don't do that <laughs> because, you know, you'll be blowing open privilege. And so it's that, that is an issue that we're often thinking about. Yeah. Or can we send that paragraph? So on, on waiver of privilege, the, the main, what we're talking about here is when there is correspondence between parties and, um, one of the parties refers to legal advice in correspondence, or in this case, it was a a witness statement, whether in the witness statement, the reference to legal advice that had been given and when the solicitor here in this case was explaining when certain facts were known to the clients for the purposes of establishing, you know, what was in reasonable contemplation at any point in time, he, he referred to legal advice that had been given in, in certain steps in very broad and general terms. Those public references to legal advice can create this question as to whether the privilege that may have attached to that advice, whether that has been waived. And the, the critical consideration in that is whether the substance and the content of that legal advice has been disclosed or whether it's being used to advance a party's case, whether it's being trying to persuade or add force to a client's position. So that's, that's one scenario that that's kind of the hallmarks of where there has been a waiver or where there hasn't been a waiver and the advice has just been merely referred to, or the effect of the advice has been referred to. And it's a, it's a basic reference. It's a, a general broad reference. That's typically not enough to, to waive privilege. Yeah. I think that's, that, that largely summarizes what is a lot of case law on, again, highly fact specific decisions, but really what you're looking at is are you specifically using a document and specifying that document? And are you using it in a way that it's where it's critical to advance your case? And if you are, you've probably waived privilege. And if you're referring in very vague and generic terms to a, you know, a category of documents that may include something that's privileged and you're not doing it in a way that particularly seeks to advance your case or specifically seeks to advance your case, then that probably falls outside a waiver of privilege. But the, the issue obviously is that the devil's in the detail and most of these cases will fall somewhere in between those two extremes. And you have to weigh up the extent to which there's been a kind of specific reference and to a particular document and a real attempt to rely on that document to advance a a particular case. Um, and that's when this factual inquiry comes into play and the cases get quite, quite tricky. And you introduce this concept of, of the court trying to have some some say over whether it would be fair or not fair to allow the the other party to see the document that's been relied on. Yeah. And as you mentioned right at the outset of today's episode, there's this overriding principle of fairness that comes through in these waiver cases. And as you say, 
they're heavily fact-specific, acutely fact-sensitive, as, as described in one of the cases. So they depend a lot on the actual case and the language used, the purpose behind it, what was the intent. But this element of fairness kind of clothes the the analysis, and that's something that's been made clear in, in, a, in a few, at least a couple of recent decisions in the Brennan and Sutherland City Council decision in 2009 and also one of our one of our favorite justices justice males in mid-east sales v united engineering of 2014 and when i say favorite justices i mean we've got a bit of a fan club going on on his judgments not, not anything beyond that and yeah so 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 those are kind of the the, the principles on on waiver of privilege and in this instant, the judge found that there wasn't enough for there to be a waiver. The references in the witness statements were more reciting steps that had been taken. There wasn't any intent to kind of use the advice that had been given in any greater way or to rely upon it or to advance advance a, advance a position. So there was a lack of reliance, really. Um, yeah, I, th- I mean, I think I think that made a lot of sense. That decision on that waiver point, it, when you look at the snippets of the of the statements in which they were. Okay, well, look, thank you everyone for for listening in. I hope you found this this trek through litigation privilege and uh, touching on waiver privilege interesting. It, it's a really critical area for practitioners and for clients to keep in mind. Getting privilege right is, is crucial, and uh, as as officers of the court, you know, as solicitors, we have, we have duties to the court, and we and we need to make sure that we we are keeping the, those considerations in mind when asserting privilege and how to deal with them. And this is a, a useful case to set it all out. And I know I'll be suggesting this to to juniors coming through that if you've got a privilege case, start here. It's a good place to start. Yeah, couldn't agree more. So thanks everybody for listening in. A very interesting case. Again, it's the decision of Kyla Shipping and Vega Shipping. Well worth a look if you have any any litigation privilege or waiver of privilege issues. So thanks Luke and thanks to everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.